morning, folks. It's time for Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show about the crucial political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and the nation at large. Join us for a stimulating, thought-provoking discussion. You'll get the facts as we focus on the challenges facing everyone. Good morning, folks. We're talking about Democrats and to some extent Republicans in flyover country. And we're talking with Gary Lemaster, who's the webmaster of Democratic Perspective. He's written a number of books and uh, has a blog. Gary, why don't you give us your book's name first and your blog's name so before, before we start? Uh, the uh, uh, most recent uh, book is... Uh, is uh, uh, called uh, uh, Truth Over Politics. I have and, a copy. Uh, it's very good. And uh, it, uh, I'm actually kind of proud of the fact that, uh, um, surprisingly, I, I predicted a number of the uh, the issues that came up from the uh, pandemic. So, um, anyway, that's uh, um, it's it's kind of old news now, but. <laughs> And, but you're, you have a you have a blog, right? That has an awful lot of followers. Yeah. And what's call, what's it called? It's called uh, Le Master's Corner. I've, um, I've been in the middle of a a move from uh, uh, rural Minnesota back to uh, the Twin Cities, so I haven't uh, updated it uh, uh, recently. But I plan to get back to it uh, uh, this week, actually. So, yeah, moving can certainly take up all your time. So we're talking about months. We're talking about Democrats, and I want to talk about Republicans in flyover country and some of the stuff we saw before the election of Donald Trump, but also with the election of Donald Trump, a little bit different takes than most people have. And I'm, I'll be relying on the research of, by Ashley Jardina um, and uh, her, her interview in The, in the New Yorker. Um, it's caused some controversy. Um, where do we want to start, Gary? I mean, the Democratic Farm Labor Party that in Minnesota was one of the most liberal groups in the United States. They were basically a socialist or pretty close. They didn't call themselves that, but they were an alternative really to the Socialist Party, weren't they? Then even the Democrats. Exactly. exactly. What's and, happening and with that? Well, it's 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 uh, become pretty much a, an, an urban. Um, Party at this point. I um, until recently I lived in rural Minnesota and and uh, I was uh, involved with the uh, DFL and uh, I went to uh, a, a county fair and another small uh, rural fair and uh, I was really surprised at the uh, at the reactions we got and uh, the misinformation and the, the lack of information that. We did a, uh, what, what really struck me is we did a, uh, a trivia contest on, uh, it's kind of on civics, basic civics questions. It was such uh, difficult uh, questions as uh, uh, who was the first president of the United States? Who was the second? Uh, when was the Declaration of Independence signed? Um, on the last question, um, in a week at, at the county fair, we had one person, a teenager, that was able to to uh, uh, say that the uh, declaration was signed in 1776. 
I mean, these were like fifth grade civics questions. And um, virtually everybody failed the, the test. And, and it was shocking to me. Um, and, you know, we also were, I'm sure the people in Prescott and Cottonwood uh, can appreciate this because I've, I've seen it myself. Um, we had numerous people coming up to, uh, to our uh, booth and, and uh, yelling at us, calling us baby killers and, and, uh, uh, and undemocratic and uh, a few people wanting to, to start uh, fights. And, and I was just utterly shocked that, that the uh, DFL, that uh, you know, the Democratic Farm Labor Party, um, seems to no longer uh, uh, be supported by either farmers uh, uh, and not a whole lot of labor. Um, no. It really was truly, uh, you know, it, it made me rethink what's been going on with the uh, with the two parties in the U.S. One of the things that I want to address later is is an explanation for that because it's not just limited, of course, folks, to Minnesota, and I think some of the recent polls showing that that basically the Republicans are even more deeply captured rural America. They must. Their, their domination has grown since Trump got into office, and, and after he got of, in office, and because of the electoral college, the uh, the rural parts of America, you know, uh, what I call flyover country, because the two coasts don't seem to really, the media on the two coasts don't seem to really care about it. Um, it it's because of the electoral college, we basically control um, the the uh, Congress. Yes, and and I I hear you about the lack of civic knowledge, and I don't know civics was the most boring class I can remember. I don't know how you teach it. Well, I don't even know how broadly civics is taught in America anymore. I it's not something I know anything about. But you know, we've certainly spent the whole semester learning all the basics, uh, not only of national politics but also of Oklahoma politics and the structure of our Oklahoma governments and counties and all that sort of stuff. Uh, people were really, really bored, and everybody wanted to sit in the back of the room. So maybe they figured out a better way to teach that now. So if you've got a teenager, at least know some of it, um, then, then that's a that's progress. Um, you you talk about the disunity of the Democratic Party, um, and it. And let's talk a little bit about that. You say there's no under-unifying ideology. But I think, to me, there is an underlying ideology, which is that government can intervene successfully to help people, right, and should do that. And that's contra. And uh, the a second thing is that taxation should tax the people who have the most the most, I mean, I think those are fundamental democratic ideas is that we tax the people who have the money, not the people who don't have the money. And, you know, in, in the world, there are societies where the peasants pay all the taxes and the aristocrats and the upper middle class pay no taxes at all. I mean, zero, not our kind of graded uh, and deceptive system, but a complete, absolute uh, way of doing things. So. What don't you see that the Democrats have that they need in terms of an ideology? You say the Republican ideology is is solid and unified, but the Democrats are not. Talk about that for two. 
Well, first, I, I suspect that, that the uh, ordinary Republican voters um, would um, pretty much agree that, that the wealthy pay more taxes than, than the, the working Americans. Um, I don't think that's necessarily a, a you know, strictly a Democratic uh, principle. Um, but I think that, that the Democrats have, have, uh, have long talked about the Democratic brand, that, that the, the party has done a poor, at least the party leadership has done a poor job of articulating what, what the party believes in. But I've, I've also experienced uh, over the years a lot of, uh, of division amongst the, the party members. When I, when I was at the, uh, the county fair, I was, was uh, working the booth with a, a, uh, a woman who, a young woman who uh, worked for the uh, labor groups in Minnesota. And um, we got into a fairly heated discussion over the uh, prospects of uh, a copper mine at the very edge of the Boundary Waters Wilderness Canoe Area um, that would almost certainly pollute the Boundary Waters' pristine area and uh, pollute the, uh, the rivers that flow into the Boundary Waters and into Lake Superior. And, you know, her, her whole point was that it was going to create a few jobs, um, you know, union jobs. And, and what I've found over the years is that, you know, it, to me it seems that the party is very divided along, uh, you know, specific issues. Uh, um, you know, you have uh, groups within the, uh, within the party that are focused on on uh, anti-discrimination and social justice issues. You have groups that are focused on economic justice, you know, as their primary issue. You have those that are focused on labor, on environment, on education, on, on voting rights, on the uh, disparity of representation, on media issues, national defense, uh, uh, business issues. It's there, there are little groups throughout the party that are so, in, in my opinion, are so focused on their own particular issue that they prioritize it above everything else. And if the leadership doesn't respond the way they think it should, if the administration doesn't act quickly enough to address the issues, then they're up in arms and, and create uh, public division with, within the party. And, and I think it's, it's very possible to be, you know, pro-labor like I am and be pro-environment at the same time. It's, you know, we can, we can embrace all of these issues at the same time. They're not mutually exclusive yet. Somehow, uh, it seems a lot of people think they are. Um, and, and I, I feel like from the beginning of the, uh, well, from the inauguration of Biden, I felt that, that a lot of these, these factions have been increasingly impatient, wanting to see climate change addressed immediately, wanting to, to see uh, immigration addressed immediately. And, you know, it, it was at a point where 
the the administration had to be focused on on restoring the economy and and trying to get the pandemic under control you know that had to be the priority but but so many of these these groups couldn't wait they, you know they just wanted to you know to have their their uh, thing addressed immediately and the, some of them were certainly asking Biden to do something, something he simply couldn't do. I mean, there were things he could not get past that would be a waste of time and energy to spend hours and hours trying to do. Um, and I understand that the progressives, to me, it, 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 part of it is not positive. The progressives have one set of agendas and the moderates have another. And everybody has a different thing that they're interested in. And I, but I hear you that you think that this is this is turned kind of counterproductive and destructive, and that uh, certainly American people kind of like more unity than than the Democrats sometimes have, and the, the way air, uh, issues have been aired. A lot, a lot to me, a lot is not right or wrong. For instance, there was a uh, conflict over who was going to be agricultural uh, secretary. And the African-American caucus wanted a, a black individual, very well qualified, wanted him to be the um, uh, agriculture secretary. And they argued they'd never been a, a black secretary. They'd never been one that focused on black farmers and so forth and so on. Seems a legitimate point of view. And then there was the Biden people who produced and, and supported a a uh, more, much more conservative guy, but someone very much trusted in the Midwest by farmers, and 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 uh, and so there was that conflict. And Biden chose the to to have the um, he had been the former governor of uh, of Iowa to have him become agricultural sort of reassuring the the, the Midwest farmers who are largely white. Um, and and so there was a conflict that seems a sort of legitimate conflict, Gary, of different interests. I don't think one side right or one side's wrong. Do you? No, I, I don't. I, I think that that uh, we need to keep in mind that the role that the media plays in all of this. That the media is built. I mean, I, I'm not. I'll dismiss the right wing media. Uh, which is based on on lies and cruelty and hate and and uh, division, and focus on on the so-called corporate media or mainstream media. They absolutely live off of sensationalism and off of conflict. So when there's when there's public conflict within the Democratic Party, it's it becomes blown out of out of proportion. Um, you know, the, the reporters are looking for that. Yes. And they want to find the, the latest bit of conflict the, the, within the party, and then they, they blast that and, and stay on that for months and months. And, and I think they, you know, it's, it's particularly telling with the uh, negotiations over the Build Back Better Act that, that um, you know, that's basically illuminated every every problem within the party. Um, you know, I, I kind of dismiss, you know, I have to separate the parties. The Democratic Party has its its internal conflicts and, and problems, but at least we aren't promoting violent res- insurrection and, and excusing it and, and promoting cruelty and violence like, like the other side. But 
But, you know, I mean, if, if you look at the two parties and what they stand for, it's, it's amazing to me that it's even a contest. Mm-hmm. You know, we have a party that, that has embraced authoritarianism and criminal activity on one hand, and then we have the Democratic Party that, that has its internal issues that become all too public, but is trying to work for, for ordinary working Americans, and, and yet they are, you know, by all accounts are likely to lose the midterms and, and put, you know, the, the other party back in power. I, I, it's, it's mystifying to me that we, we can't unify and, and unify our message and, and our ideology and bring our, our own party together. You know, how do we, how do we, you know, uh, possibly end the division in the country if we can't even end the division in our own party? Um, one of the articles I, I saw, Gary, said basically Democrats talk about the program. This is a wonderful program that will do X. They don't really talk in, in public relation terms about what it will do for you as an individual or what it will do for your group or what it will do for the country. They talk about the programs and they expect people to understand how they'll function. In other words, they talk about the credit for for children, um, the tax credit, and how good it is. But they don't explain, for your family, this will mean a lot. It's there, but it's not emphasized in, in, in quite the correct way. And I think you're right. Mm-hmm. This making of sausage like it. For instance, they, they passed the ACA, Obamacare, but they never really got across what it was doing for people. And the, what got focused on by the press was the nasty process of, of, of compromise that it took to get it passed when you had people on the left on, and right. It got focused on the overall 10-year cost of the program. Uh, it, you know, I mean, that's all you heard I know, in the media I know. for for months and months was, was uh, it's a $3.5 trillion uh, right. you know, program. Um, it you know, I think it, it uh, would be worthwhile to, to do a little comparison. The worst case scenario uh, by the CBO, the you know Congressional Budget Office, and their estimate of the cost of, of the Build Back Better Act is that it will cost 178 billion dollars a year. That's that's the worst case scenario. Now they didn't take into account what. Money can be re- recovered or uh, revenue brought in by by uh, uh, increasing the uh, policing of the IR- by the IRS of, of tax cheats, which you know, according to the uh, economists for the Democrats, will will cover more than cover the cost of the of the program. But you know, so we have all of this angst and, and anger over a. $178 billion a year, yet there's a, a defense budget that's going through at the same time that is more than four times the cost of, of the Build Back Better Act. And, and uh, it just keeps increasing year after year after year. Um, it's now $778 billion is what the plan is. Um, so, you know, the, it gets focused on things like the overall cost. 
it doesn't get focused on what they the act uh, actually is going to do. Uh, like you say, there's no discussion over what it can do for the ordinary American. Or that they'll have more money and uh, pay more taxes, hopefully, and the, so will the companies who are benefiting by um, all this stuff. Uh, the thing I saw, Gary, way back in the Carter administration, and we're talking, folks, not about Fox News and the far-right distortion of everything that's happening. We're talking about just sort of mainstream media. And part of it, it the part of the problem is not bias. It's the way the media is structured with 24-hour news now. But even back in the Carter administration, I remember um, – uh, in Washington, they announced a program, right? And the next day or later that day, they were down asking Jimmy Carter and Jordan why it hadn't been implemented. So the, 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 you can report things so much quicker than you can do things. And what I see is an acceleration of this problem where the media is impatient and wants news and stuff beyond what can be done. Programs take time figuring out things. Economically takes time. Getting bills through takes time. And we have a media that's all jazzed up and hyper. And I don't think they mean to be biased about it, but the process is biased in a sense toward doing anything, you know. And and I think that we've seen that that, that accelerate with 20, with more and more cable news and and stuff. And I don't think they mean to do wrong. I think they just don't understand. Well, they just want a story, and they and they you know they want to beat the other guy. And so it doesn't make any sense to ask you know if a program is announced one day to ask the president why it isn't working, you know, or why it hasn't been implemented the next day. It just doesn't make sense. And nobody ever calls him on this. Nobody ever says, you know, hey, guys, slow down a little bit and think about, you know, I guess because so many of them spent their whole lives in media and they haven't worked in business or something where you you, you, you know that it takes time to get anything done. Well, I, I was trained in journalism and, and uh, I think what's lacking and, and, and I'm kind of uh, stunned at, at uh, what's taught in journalism schools these days. I've done a lot of lecturing over the years at, at J schools. But, you know, they leave out the what I consider one of the most important aspects of the story, and that's context. You know, right now they're, they're holding Biden, you know, accountable for the pandemic. He hasn't solved the pandemic. You know, it's you know we still have people being hospitalized and dying from from COVID. Yet he has made the the vaccines you know available to anyone, and it's certainly not his problem that the pandemic hasn't been solved. Actually, the people that are being hospitalized are are largely the the unvaccinated and largely Republicans who who have unfortunately believed in, in the uh, right-wing media that the vaccines are bad for them. That's certainly uh, true. But, Gary, the, the, the thing is that, that COVID is something new. And, and when Biden's predictions didn't hold up, you know, you should, he, he made very conservative predictions about what would be happening with COVID. But COVID is still something we don't completely understand. And he got undercut 
by uh, a new variant in the disease, which turned to be very virulent. Not really that predictable. I mean, he was trying well, to make conservative well, we things, but his, his statements that, that vaccines can prevent it. Well, of course, but that, that the point is, is we don't know how the disease really operates. And when we shut down one and then we get a variant that's not any worse when it when people get it, but it's more infectious. COVID is something that you have to be careful making predictions about because it is something new. And I think that I don't see in the media or at all any recognition that, look, well, of course, the Republicans, the conservatives want to act like you had should have had this whole thing all figured out from day one. But that was impossible. You don't really know. You really have to work on a lot of different options. And so what I see them is bashing uh, uh, Biden for stuff he said, which was which I thought was on, and when I talked to people in uh, medically, uh, thought was very conservative. But we we just don't understand the disease completely. I think it's pretty much licked now. It certainly looks like it because we now only not only have uh, vaccines, but for those people who, for whatever reason, hate vaccines, we've got uh, treatments, medical treatments that'll that'll break at least the the damage that the disease does to the human body. We we currently have a huge outbreak in Minnesota and across the upper Midwest of COVID, and it's it's almost entirely people who refuse to be vaccinated, and there are still people dying, and the hospitals are full. Um, the ICU beds, you know, they're running out of ICU beds in in Minnesota, and it's it's just because of the party. Primarily because of a political party that, and its its media that uh, is telling people don't get vaccinated, and and it's completely unnecessary. I, I call it cleansing the gene pool. If enough Republicans get it and and die because of, of their refusal to be vaccinated, we may all be better off. Actually, uh, the thing is that there's two ways that COVID will be defeated. One if, if, is enough people get it and have immunity, and the other is if people take immunization. Uh, until you reach herd immunity, it's going to continue to break out. So you really need to have herd immunity. And what I see is the Republican policies, these these lies and distortions and weird non 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 really effective or or relevant things these battle over you know over mandates and stuff well there were no mandates until we didn't get her herd immunity with all, everything else we tried and i'm not a big fan of them but you know if we, if we don't get herd immunity there's going to still be break outbreaks like this and if an area because people don't get vaccinated there's going to be uh, outbreak. I'm very sorry they're getting the disease. I I hope that the, the that we know a lot more about COVID than we did when it first broke out, and we have a much better ways of treating it, and there's a much better survival rate. But the, I the this changer, is a, this the game changer is going to be the the pill that that is a treatment. But yeah, I would take issue with the idea that that having gotten COVID once is going to give uh, anyone immunity. That's not what my my, people, my friends in the medical community are telling me. I have a good friend who is a respiratory therapist. Her, her uh, 
patients used to be almost exclusively uh, the elderly who were having trouble with, mm-hmm. with uh, various diseases. Most of her patients today are people who are uh, so-called long haulers from, from, um, who have uh, gotten COVID, um, and they're young. You know, they're, they're people of all ages, but, but more young than, than elderly. And so getting COVID once isn't necessarily going to give you immunity. If once you've recovered from it, isn't necessarily going to give you immunity. I think I will have to disagree with you that it's very likely it increases your chances of immunity. Um, but uh, I, I think we should go on because I, your, your point that I, that I do agree with is that the political opposition trying to gain something by using the resentment for what the measures that were necessary to slow down COVID and stop COVID – um, and to build on that resentment in order to build your political party, even at the cost of killing people, is certainly the thing, something that the right wing did. Absolutely. And, and they could have controlled it much better at the very beginning. You know, their estimates are, are now that, that probably 500,000 Americans died unnecessarily because of the failure to react to it uh, as, as quickly as Yes, it was certainly certainly the Trump mis, uh, administration mishandled it by not denying that it was important, denying that it was significant, denying it, that it was even here. They contributed to that. So politics politics is important. It can affect people's lives. And that's something that people have to understand because they think in a way we've become very cynical about anything actually affecting us. Um, and, and politics does affect us. The Build Back Better program will help people. The earlier Biden programs, we were stunned by, by how helpful they would have been to the American people. Some of the things that were removed, it's just too bad. Uh, we talked to uh, Max Richmond about all of the removal of the, of the part of the program which had uh, infrastructure that had to do with, with helping fund uh, home care for the elderly rather than putting them in institutions. I mean, it seems like a no-brainer, but it, it, it was one of the things that, that Max thought would be eliminated. I think almost all of us did because it was kind of an outlier for what you meant by immunity. But I, you know, there, the, the, these policies do make a difference. The ACA, be, getting health care is something that really helped and, uh, and saved people's lives. There's just not even an argument about it. You may not like the way it was done, but then what's your way of doing it? You know, um, and you know. I looked up what, what's in the in, you know currently in the in the Build Back Better Act that passed the the House, and I think it's it would be good to to cover some of the issues that are in it. Uh, uh, you know, despite all of the the uh, angst over the negotiations for it. Um, it still is a, is a very good bill that will help, uh, you know, millions of Americans. Uh, there's uh, ex- expanded ch- child tax credits. There's free universal pre-kindergarten uh, education for three- and four-year-olds. There's funding for, for daycare for those who uh, have trouble affording it. There's, uh, you know, a, a 
a cap on uh, the cost of uh, of some of the uh, highest priced prescription drugs. There's hearing coverage for Medicare patients. There's paid family four weeks paid family leave. Uh, there's increased funding for Pell grants for for uh, college education. There's uh, the funding for uh, at home elder care that you talked about. There's uh, funding to address and prevent some of the worst uh, uh, severe weather events and, and the effects of climate change. For example, there's money to convert the, the uh, post office fleet of vehicles to all electric fleet. Okay, um, Gary, so why, with all these wonderful things, does the messaging about it fail? Why is all the Republican uh, about the infighting of what goes in the bill and what doesn't go in the bill and the cost of the bill by, you know, it's so easy to scare people. People don't realize, you know, I mean, houses cost a million dollars. Programs are going to cost trillions of dollars. That's just the way it is. I mean, the military costs trillions of dollars. There's no way around those figures. But what happens when you have a domestic program, it seems like they, all the guys come out screaming bloody murder, as you mentioned earlier, about the cost of it. And the cost of it in, as a percentage of the, the GDP is very small. Right, and as even as a, as a percentage of government spending, it's not large. So when you hear that stuff, get some perspective about it. Um, everything we do these days is going to cost lots of money. There's just no way around it. All the good programs have have been well. Some of them haven't been expensive, but but to to. Uh, and there is a failure to fund some of the stuff. I will say that uh, not not have, I guess politically can't raise taxes on the wealthy. So I mean that means that the programs are underfunded, right, Gary? I mean, yeah, it's 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 so weird that I mean this is a program that will help most average ordinary working Americans. Almost everybody will benefit from it. The, the only people that won't will be those people at the very top of the income uh, and wealth you know, uh, spectrum. But, um, you know, for example, when, when the uh, Trump administration passed the, the tax cuts, all you heard was that it was going to cut taxes for Americans. It did almost nothing for, for people, for average Americans, to cut taxes. And the sunset of the... What I'm laughing, Gary, because all the Republican programs are like that. They're always cutting taxes, and they're always cutting almost all the tax money on the wealthy. I mean, it's just kind of what they do. And uh, I don't know why ordinary Republicans don't care about that, but uh, maybe they just listen to Fox News and believe whatever they're told. I don't know. Well, it's, it, it kind of goes back to where I started with the, the lack of information about civics and the lack of and the misinformation being put out by by uh, you know media like Fox News and the right wing radio. Um, it, it people don't understand how government works in rural America. There's a belief that that their taxes that they pay all go to benefit the cities. 
That's I true. I think that if I pay if I pay taxes from you know income taxes from what I made off my farm, it's not going to help me. It's going to help the people in the cities that that I despise. That aren't it's like going to me. build more freeways, and it's you know it's going to go to welfare, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I've heard the that. Fact, the fact is that the, the uh, taxes work the reverse of that. The taxes paid in the cities, more of those go out to rural areas to pay for roads and and uh, pay for infrastructure than than uh, the rural Americans pay in taxes. That's yeah. because the, the the number of people in rural America along, and I grew up on a farm, by the way, the number of people along a road per mile in rural America is very, very small compared to the number of people along a road in a, in a, uh, in a large city. So the large cities are funding programs for rural America, not the other way around, as most rural Americans believe. And red states are uh, being funded basically by the taxes from blue states. I mean, exactly. it's it's the reverse of what most people think. And um, certainly, certainly you're right about what they for think. For example, pays, pays uh, nine to ten times more in taxes than they get back from the federal government. Or you know, or a red state like Mississippi, well, it, it will be almost the reverse. They'll they'll get far more money from the federal government than than they pay in. But they think the opposite. I think. Um, I think what I would like to do next week is talk about white identity politics. Uh, I found it a really interesting article. And it conforms to much, uh, much more to what I've uh, found. But people are unwilling to fund people who generally they see as different of them, different than themselves. And they usually see the difference not in terms of race, although they may actually be seeing that, but in terms of behavior. We're giving money to people who don't work. Uh, the old welfare queen thing that, that happened in the Reagan administration where they found a few women who were abusing the um, the uh, welfare system. Um, the, the, the feeling I the, – what I hear is the people in the cities are not like us in, in rural – they're not working like us. They're on welfare. But there's no welfare anymore, right? Exactly. And, and the people that get the, the benefit of – of programs, of public assistance programs, are primarily single mothers who have been, you know, left with a child by a father who's abandoned them um, and refuses to pay child support, and they're they're predominantly white. Um, it's it's the opposite of of the image that that uh, most Americans have of of a so-called welfare recipient. And, and I'd also point out that the lack of understanding about the problems faced by most, you know, large city residents is, imagine, you know, if, if, you know there's a lot of uh, talk about the $15 an hour minimum wage. Well, in rural America, in my hometown in, in Iowa, $15 an hour will give you a pretty good living. And most of the farmers I know in that area are driving $50,000 pickups, 
there, you know, there uh, with every you know kind of luxury that you can imagine. They're they're you know paying one hundred and fifty thousand dollars and more for a tractor, et cetera, et cetera. But fifteen dollars an hour in a small town will, will give you a pretty good living. Now imagine living off of fifteen dollars an hour in Manhattan, or in San Francisco, or in say in downtown Chicago. It's not possible. Yet, yet people in rural America don't understand that. I think that I think there's a lot of uh, resentment by rural America generally, um, uh, mostly white rural America. Uh, against what's happening in the country and the feeling that everything is being done for somebody else other than them. And we know that there are all these farm programs that help farmers. There's all this effort, the vast agricultural uh, departments supporting them. There are state departments supporting them, state agricultural departments supporting them. Um, but they, they feel that they're left out of, of the new emerging America which is multicultural, multiracial, and multi-economic, and where different people than before are successes, um, where your nerds suddenly bake billions of dollars um, instead of the uh, um, John Galts of the of the world. Um, so you don't have to be a super entrepreneur if you can write great code, you know. So. I think there's a, a lot of feeling of in rural America of being left behind. Um, I don't. I, what do you think, Gary? What's your... they, they, they would happily support a billionaire who you know would fly around the country and is is branded plane from one golf resort to another, and and for some for some you know unknown reason. They could look at that guy and say, he's one of us. Yeah. I, you know, that, that to me has been astounding. That's always been true. I noticed it when I was growing up in Oklahoma that they could identify with, um, oh, uh, this uh, billionaire guy who rode around in a giant pink Cadillac with longhorns on the front of it. Uh, they can identify with him, but they can't identify with a college professor. There's a lot of um, uh, jealousy distrust of of people who are trying to figure out ways to help them. Well, we've only got two minutes left. I'll let you s- sum up, uh, Gary. Well, I, you know, my, I guess my point is that I think we really need to focus on educating people about how our government works. Um, I, I think there's nothing more important at this point. And I think the Democratic Party needs to figure out how it can better bring together all of the various factions and, and self-interest groups. Um, you know, it, you have basically two conservatives in the party that are driving the, the uh, negotiations for, for the uh, Biden agenda and, and overriding the, the largest caucus within the Democratic Party, which is a progressive caucus, which is... 95 members. Um, I think we need to, to get our act together and get our message in together, uh, or we're going to be living with, with a, a you know a horrible result. So, 
Thank you, Gary, for being with us. Gary's uh, writes a really good blog. I hope you get the time to get back to doing it. It's filled with information and and a combination of his opinions and insights and research. Gary's a great researcher. Um, I really appreciate you being on the show, Gary, and not just being in the in the background. Uh, my, my pleasure. I'd like to wish everybody a happy Thanksgiving. Yeah, happy Thanksgiving, folks. I, it's coming up soon. Um, Check out the door website. Great stuff there. El Portal, wonderful hotel. And the Yavapai Democratic Party has really been helpful to us, and we want to thank them. You've been listening to Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show focusing on the political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and our nation at large. Catch us every Monday morning after the 8 a.m. news, right here on AM 780 KAZM. It's beautiful out there, folks. Have a great day.